This is Bob Ford of History, Mystery, and Lore, where we travel throughout the Midwest to museums and historic sites, talking to experts and old friends who have interesting tales to tell. Today, I'm in my hometown, St. Joseph, Missouri, at Missouri Western State University, visiting the Walter Cronkite Memorial. But before I go, let me give you a little background on Walter's life. He was born in St. Joseph on November 4, 1916, to Dr. Walter Cronkite and his wife, Helen. Dr. Cronkite was a respected dentist, and that's hard to become in the early 1900s. When Walter was 10, they moved to Houston, Texas, and he attended the University of Texas in Austin, where he got his first journalism job at the Daily Texan. He got his first break into media in 1935 at WKY in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. This is where he met his wife, Betsy, and soon they moved off to Kansas City, where Walter became a sports announcer at KCMO Radio. In 1937, he received his biggest break of all. He got a job offer from famed journalist Edward R. Murrow, CBS News. And he became later what was to be known as a Murrow boy. Walter was sent to Moscow to become a bureau chief, and his career was off and running. Let us go now to the University in St. Joseph and to the Walter Cronkite Memorial and learn why this man was to become the most trusted man in America. This is Bob Ford of History, Mystery, and Lore. As promised, today I come from my hometown, St. Joseph, Missouri. I am visiting the Walter Cronkite Memorial on the campus of Missouri Western State University, speaking with... Hi, I'm Dominic DeBrinkett. Well, Dominic is Assistant Dean of Liberal Arts and Assistant Professor of History, and thank you very much for doing this. My pleasure. As you know, I've given a brief history of Walter's life, and but before we get to the good stories, tell me a little bit about this wonderful exhibit you've put together and how it all got started. Well, the Walter Cronkite Memorial is one of the crown jewels of the Missouri Western Campus here in St. Joseph. It's located in Spratt Hall, kind of in the center of campus, uh, in the center of campus living. Uh, it is a beautiful, simple exhibit uh, that welcomes people from around the country. It is designed to be self-guided, but occasionally people are lucky enough to get tours from experts or docents that we have on campus. It's um, a, a celebration of his life, in particular his passions, which include uh, obviously news, but also his passion for uh, space exploration. It is an homage to his career with CBS, so when you walk in, you'll be greeted with a display of news clips that visitors will be able to choose themselves. They can click on boards that will take them to different news reports that he gave or that he anchored when he was with CBS. In addition to that first interactive board, there's also an illustrated timeline that has uh, the hallmarks of his life. 
from his time in St. Joseph to his retirement from CBS News in the early 80s. There's also an interactive uh, film exhibit on the time he came home in the late 1960s to uh, address a Washington scandal with uh, uh, Vice President Spiro Agnew. He came home to talk about the integrity of news journalism. So you can see this clip that celebrates not only his hometown, but also his love for journalistic honesty. There is also a lot of dedicated space to his fascination with space exploration. The hallmark of this is also a, um, a sculpture that was put together by Missouri Western professors that is a two-story sculpture uh, that demonstrates the liftoff of one of the early rockets from NASA. Uh, you can also see a lot of the artifacts from his career from CBS. Uh, foundations and the Cronkite family have offered up his work desk, uh, Emmys that he won for his work with CBS News, and then uh, there's a gallery of cartoons that were illustrated uh, on his life. And then upstairs, there's a replication of a studio. Uh, that's my favorite part of it, the replication of the studio itself. Well, I love coming in and seeing uh, the images and the photography are just mm -hmm. wonderful. You get everybody who's anybody that he came into contact with and, and what a career and what a time he lived in. And then you're correct, going upstairs to actually visit a replica of his office and studio that, uh, and it was a working studio. It was a newsroom. But um, all right, let's uh, let's start off with really early in his career. Uh, as I say, what what times he lived in, World War Two, um, and he was not uh, he was not a shrinking violet to go in with the 101st Airborne on a glider behind enemy lines. What was he thinking? Well, he was thinking that he was invincible until he got on the glider. Uh, this was a man who did not shrink away from the news. He insisted on being relocated first from Kansas City to New York and then needed to be in London, wanted to be on the continent. And the best way to get onto the continent was to fly. And so unlike most journalists who either work from a desk or work from the ground, like most sensible journalists, he went on several uh, air raids um, and even uh, that incident where he jumps out of a plane, which he thought was going to be in a parachute instead was on a glider, was absolutely horrifying. He describes it as one of the most terrifying moments because he didn't like when we I see gliders on TV, they glide, but he dove and he said it was absolutely uh, terrifying. Well, of course, he went to London under his protege, uh, Edward R. Merle, and he became one of Merle's boys. It's called kind of the Band of Brothers of Journalism, mm -hmm. along with uh, Eric Severide and Ted Post, is that uh, correct? Or? Post was one of them, yes. Mm -hmm. One yeah. of the unfortunate ones. Oh, oh, really? And um, Andy Rooney. Andy Rooney. That uh -huh. always blows me away. The two of them. They were similar ages. They were similar ages. They were both, um, you know, caught in airplanes, uh, in shrapnel, uh, to think that these were the, for me growing up, the elder statesmen of news. Mm -hmm. And here they were without um, any qualms, just diving right into action. But that's what he did, yep. and that's what he's known for throughout his career, is uh, becoming involved and in going to where the action is. Mm -hmm. 
Well, shortly after that, he uh, he then becomes a CBS reporter and replaces Edward R. Murrow as the senior correspondent for CBS. Then a year later, he takes over the desk at uh, doing the nightly news, which I can say, growing up, I watched every night with my father. Yep. So he affected so many lives. But it's his demeanor, his calmness. He was unflappable, and even though in in horrific circumstances, he would keep the nation calm. Yes. Speak to his demeanor, if you would. This is something that was... Um, a style that he created, a style that has been replicated for years. Uh, he essentially invents the nightly news as a staple where families come together to watch. And in part of it was his... The nightly news had not really been tested before him becoming kind of that family anchor. And he wanted to make sure that people understood that he was delivering the news. He grew up in the newspaper world where they had to catch headlines and compete with other newspapers. But he treated television differently. He treated television as if he was sitting down with somebody who was asking, what did I miss today? And he wanted to make sure that within a half hour's time, he calmly brought that to you. So whether he was doing it every night or doing it as a newsflash, he had an absolute responsibility to comfortably walk you through it. He was always concerned about uh, being seen as unfair, being seen as biased, and he thought that that calmness was a way to instill a sense of objectivity. And people didn't doubt him. Not a lot of people doubted him. And isn't it sad today? You've got so many journalists that uh, editorialize things. I mean, I can't think many that don't. So uh, why did it change? Did they, did they change the way they teach journalism? Well, that is a great question. As a historian, I won't speak to how uh, it's taught in class. But I remember as a kid, if, if an anchor started editorializing, they would sign his name at the bottom of the screen to announce, all right, this is somebody who's doing something different than delivering news. But they did it rarely, and they did it to make a point. Cronkite rarely ever made these editorials, uh, except on rare occasions where he believed this needs to be stated. And it was usually in some sort of special format, not in that nightly news. I think the distinction today is that he had a half hour, a half hour to tell us everything that happened in that day. And what's changed, especially since um, 9-11, is People tune into the news to keep it on in the background at all times. And journalists don't know how to fill that kind of time. Mm. You're not filling 30 minutes with wall-to-wall news. Today, people are filling it with hours, and you can't do it with facts alone. And so they turn to commentary, which only serves to, to fill space, to editorialize, and doesn't inform like we were used to back in the 70s and 80s. Well, you think about the things that he covered. Yeah. I mean, going from uh, World War II to then, and so many conventions, political conventions, that uh, they themselves were making history. Yeah. And he had he had to keep the nation calm through those times. But 
he speaks to this this idea that when he did those conventions in the 50s, it's the last time we saw them unfiltered because the people who put these conventions together were used to chaos, but it made them look like fools once people could see it on TV. And so now they become much more scripted, much more um, controlled. Um, his broadcasts change the way we look at conventions. We don't treat them with the same um, expectation of chaos that they did in the 50s. Well, the other things he went through, I mean, just just think what he led the country through. Uh, Martin Luther King's assassination, of course, the Kennedys' assassinations, Watergate, to which he won his uh, Emmy for. Yeah. And he was most proud of that, I've read. Yeah, he's very proud of his ability to desensationalize what was probably the most sensational government crisis uh, in American history, that he was able to present it as facts in an objective way. In a, and by doing so, he actually, uh, and I'm editorializing here, he defeated Nixon in doing that. Nixon was convinced that the press were out to get them, that the press was trying to destroy them, and instead, Nixon gave them the story that made it very easy for them to essentially collapse onto themselves. And all Cronkite had to do was repeat it factually, soberly to the American people in a way that they could understand it to say, hey, what's going on in Washington is no longer acceptable. And so Nixon created this beast, this mythical beast, the press, um, and then he essentially feeds them the story that crushes them. I still remember the report of uh, when he... When he gave the nation the news that JFK had been assassinated yeah. and he takes his horn rim glasses off yep. and tilts his head, trying not to break up, yet delivering the worst news a nation could hear for a beloved president being assassinated. And that's a iconic in that you not only had the image that he was presenting, you had the words, yeah. and he combined them both uh, beautifully in that very sad moment. I mean, when you think of the Kennedy assassination and our memory of it, the memory is more of Cronkite than the murder itself, right? Mm. That um, we didn't have the Zapruder hand or the Zapruder film in hand. It wasn't for public consumption. It was something that was far too graphic for TV once they got their hands on it. And it wouldn't be until much later that people started digesting it. So our real enduring memory of it is Cronkite's delivery, which is iconic for one, the glasses, which was I am stepping out of my persona for a moment here. I, I am not just Walter Cronkite. I'm another American who's devastated by this. And secondly, it's really the only time he breaks on TV. And he doesn't collapse or anything like that, but it's really the only time that he breaks emotionally, which a journalist is not supposed to do. They're supposed to be dispassionately guided by the facts. Um, just a, a side story to that. In the Cronkite exhibit, we have the kind of the remade studio. And when it was first open, there was a camera there. And you could have your picture taken behind that. They'd take a picture. A printer would bring out this picture. And almost invariably, the pose that everybody took was taking their glasses off. And then, in fact, they have glasses on the, on the, um, on the desk for you to use. Mm -hmm. But almost everybody would at least pose like that once. Because wow. that's our enduring image of him. Well, wasn't the uh, Lee Harvey Oswald assassination by Jack Ruby, wasn't that live? 
I mean, didn't they show that assassination? They showed that because the next day. They, well, they they showed when it, it when it happened because they were not expecting somebody to die. Uh, comedian Dennis Leary once made a joke about how uh, baby boomers haven't been able to turn the TV off because one day they were watching and somebody got shot live on TV, and you never knew what to expect after that. Uh, so being able to deliver from the assassination to the attack or the the murder of Oswald to the funeral, which happened the next day, shows how quickly advancing TV was coming. I mean, when Cronkite went on the air, they didn't have a feed set up from Dallas yet at all from the assassination, so he was actually delivering from a radio booth to start before the cameras were ready to go. Well, he not only, not only the news, but, but while he was... On delivering the news, society went through such a change. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about the Beatles, Vietnam, Vietnam yeah. protests. Yeah. And Walter Cronkite, again, subtly guided society through the change. And we did change. Yeah. And he let Americans know that the change was okay. I mean, it was terrifying from his viewpoint to see how quickly the country was changing. Um, but uh, thinking about the riots of the 1960s, they're covering these from 65 on to 68. Uh, it became regular news, but he had to remind Americans that if America is going to transition from, say, in civil rights context, from segregation to tolerance to equality, these are the things that bring about revolutionary change. And he had to do it without editorializing. He was presenting to a very divided America, but everybody remembers that it was Cronkite who was delivering that news to them. And I think uh, he was so well accepted because he did have, I'll be general, these Midwest roots. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if he would have come from either coast, I, I don't see him having the impact that uh, that the, the country allowed him to have. I think that's a, a fair assessment. You and I, two Midwesterners sitting at a table together, understand <laughs> the patience that uh, it takes to view the world. Uh, Midwesterners take things in stride a lot more slowly, a lot more deliberately. And you're not going to get that from a New Yorker who um, lives in a much faster world. We're Midwest nice. Midwest nice, absolutely. <laughs> and so Cronkite was able to deliver that Midwest nice. He didn't have to put on some Atlantic affect accent that a lot of the broadcasters had done for generations before, or not generations before, for decades before, um, he was able to use his own voice. And, you know, living in Missouri, which is, I would argue, the crossroads of all American accents, this is a place where he was able to take that kind of calm, approachable um, personality and make it the center of American news. And it's been replicated since, right? We hear these tales of journalists going to school to speak Midwestern uh, because it's much more approachable. I like it. Well, yeah. you know, as the as a society changes and as people probably had problems with that change, yeah. here comes the space race. And boy, he, he really latched onto that. And so he kind of changed the focus uh, not look look what good America is doing. Yeah. And so he changed you can oh these Beatles look at their hair, Vietnam <laughs> protests, oh my gosh, but we just shot off Apollo eleven. Yeah. Holy cow. And I have to say Apollo eleven, 
I happened to be on Daytona Beach that oh. day and saw it go up with my father. That's beautiful. Yeah, he took me down there for it. Oh, that's so, fantastic. I was just a kid. His his fascination with the space race, I, I really admire in the sense that he does not, at least in his histor- his memory, you know, thinking about the way he, he recalls it, that it wasn't about communism. It wasn't about beating the communists. It was about advancing science. It was about advancing American excellence. Mm -hmm. And so think about what he had to do. I mean, this was a guy who um, kind of fumbled his way into journalism and into the kind of the most visible medium ever um, with almost no science background. And he taught himself everything he could about the physics that went into space exploration and rocket development so that he could speak to Americans in a way that they would understand it. You know, the rocket developments in World War II were born out of the necessity of defeating, say, Nazism around the world. Americans didn't care about the science that went behind it. They cared about the cultural defeat of this menace in Europe. But the way he celebrated the space race, this was about American excellence and in some ways international excellence with all of the Germans that helped with it being part of this American triumph. Well, one of the things that he is most known for was his coverage for Vietnam. And he, again, was right there helping society understand things, learn about things, and change the way they thought. And... um, Let's talk about that. He taught Americans that war is not always business as usual. I mean, the American public was very confident with their ability to win wars with World War I, especially World War II. And those two wars were opportunities for families to send their young men off um, to bring honor for country and to make the world safe for democracy. The Cold War changes all of that because it is less about um, American strength. And these wars that happen afterwards are really fueled by an American fear of losing that edge. And so the United States uh, fights in Korea, but it's Vietnam that really changes the way Americans saw war. Uh, Americans seemed fairly invincible with their technology and had shown that success in some pretty large theaters, especially in World War II. Uh, But Vietnam was, uh, how do I say this? The government was not very candid about why the United States went to war in Vietnam. Uh, This was going to be a war to prevent the collapse of dominoes, uh, communist countries taking over Southeast Asia. But Americans knew very little about Vietnam. They didn't know that the French had already been fighting there for, what, 10 years already. And so um, when Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, became president, he began accelerating the war effort, putting many, many more ground troops than his predecessors had expected. And so in those early days, Cronkite went to Vietnam to explain to America what's going on there. Why uh, do Americans worry about the collapse of Southeastern Asian dominoes? What changes it all is January of 68 with the Tet Offensive. This was supposed to be a pause in the war for the Tet holiday, and it was anything but... um, uh, the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong uh, assaulted uh, 
southern uh, South Vietnam strongholds and American bases and embassies. And while they were not nearly as successful as they had hoped, it showed how vulnerable the United States was in this war. And so Cronkite went and visited to find out what was going on. He went and uh, he went to Hue to see that this was not an easy war. And he saw that these were young men who did not understand why they were there fighting, that they were fighting a government battle that had no clear objectives. And nobody had said that to anybody in the United States. Cronkite comes home with a special report, and he says very clearly, the evidence on the ground after being there for so many years shows us that this war is not a winnable war. And he said the unspeakable, the best thing for the United States to do is to walk out of this war honorably. And Americans don't walk away from war. If they engage in a war, then they must finish it. That's how history had played out. And in this case, Cronkite said the most honorable thing to do was to save these young men who were fighting there and bring them home. And this was the first time anybody in American news had said, maybe this war isn't a logical war or a war that could be actually um, won. And Johnson was rattled by this. Johnson was uh, very concerned. He says something to the effect of, well, hell, if I've, lost Cron if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost all of Middle America. And he needed Middle America for re-election because with the civil rights bills, he had lost most of the Deep South and the support that he had there. And that's what people were saying at the yeah. time. Jo Johnson did not go for re-election yeah. because of Walter Cronkite. Boy, that's a, that's a, a, surely Cronkite believed that he had some influence in that. Um, that is a bold statement. And I mean, the timing supports such a claim, but it was pretty clear Johnson was exhausted by the missteps by that point. And Cronkite basically laying him out for America made it pretty clear. How are you going to have a draft when Americans are being told that this war can't be won? Uh, I remember changing my mind in yeah. Vietnam, you know, and growing up and reading about it. And then I changed my mind over Quezon. Yeah. I, reading the daily report on Quezon and go, what in the world are we doing? Yeah. I mean, it's just on and on. And I'm sure there are a lot of people just like me in, uh, because I was, they were wanting to draft me. Yeah. So going, yeah, you know, 53,000 people have been killed and... We can't win this war? And we can't clarify the objectives either. I mean, no. the objectives was to, what, prevent the spread of communism. Mm -hmm. And it, it simply wasn't working at the time, especially as the, when Nixon took over and expanded the fighting into Cambodia and uh, Laos. There was no, from the American public side, uh, their viewpoint, there was no way they could see an end to this war if it's expanding at a time where popularity at home is diminishing. And I can remember watching Walter Cronkite with my father, yeah. who, of course, had not changed his attitude. He was a World War II vet. So you don't well, walk away from war. Doggone, you know, let's, yeah. uh, let's press on. And uh, with Walter Cronkite changing his mind, yeah. I can't say my dad did, but... Uh, that softened his understanding of where I was coming from. Yeah, and, and it's coming from a man who he's not um, a journalist who you know studied at Harvard and spent his entire time in a newsroom in the East Coast. This is a man who walked the walk. He wasn't allowed to fight in World War II. Uh, he failed his physical for I think it was color blindness, uh, mm. but he was 
still insisting on being uh, a part of the war effort by reporting back to Americans. And as we talked about, right, he was shot at uh, as in an effort to get news back to America. Well, and he wasn't all that young a man in Vietnam. He was, uh, nope. you know, 40 plus. Yeah. And uh, World War Two, you can understand, because that was... A different sort of war. Yes. And um, everybody was all in. Well, Vietnam, you know, changed America. The threat was harder to um, get your hands on. The communist threat was much harder to quantify because it wasn't embodied in just one person like Hitler. It was easy to target, right? And his ideology was easy to target. But by the 70s, American, the 60s and 70s, Americans were growing uh, more delusioned with what the threat of communism really was. As he aged, he continued to get accolades from uh, not only uh, the press corps, but uh, through society itself. President Carter gives him the, pres uh, the uh, Medal of Freedom, in uh, 1981, and that really culminated things for him. Yeah. And it just uh, speaks to his life and his career. And to, to think that, I mean, he's in a business that is um, essentially entertainment-based, right? He had come from the newspaper world where they were fueled by information. Uh, the newspaper industry had scoffed at TV because it was all fluff and not enough substance. And what he did is he took the integrity of the newspaper world and put it into TV and made TV news respectable as a form of family entertainment that people got their information from you know my students today have no sense of where to where my generation got news and it was at six o'clock mm -hmm. it was at six thirty with local news and national news and our newspaper that was on our porch we had to seek out that news it didn't come to us like it uh it does to my students today yes we got our news it was delivered we had to have our news before we could start our day mm -hmm. and uh then it's what you discussed so, but anyway, but Dom, I want to thank you for your time in this interview. You're very enlightening with Walter Cronkite's career and what he meant to a whole generation, becoming the most trusted man in America, leading us through some difficult times. I'm on 36 Highway in St. Joseph, and it continues to be my favorite highway with Mark Twain and Hannibal, Walt Disney and Marceline, General John J. Pershing in Laclede, J.C. Nichols in Hamilton, and here in St. Joseph, Jesse James and Walter Cronkite. If you get a chance, this memorial is very much worth your while. So please, this is Bob Ford with History, Mystery, and Lore, keeping history alive so you can pass it on. Speaking of passing history on, pass us on. If you enjoy these episodes, rate us, then even better, gift us to a family member or friend that loves history. To learn more, go to BobFordsHistory.com for details. If you would like a history gift that keeps coming all year long, we have dozens more interviews already in the can with more to come. That's B-O-B-F-O-R-D-S history.com. I appreciate your support so we can continue to make history. Thank you.